From the Vault, a true crime podcast is a production of JPF Productions and Bebo Studios. All opinions stated are those of the podcast and its hosts and are not to be considered factual. Any facts related to today's case has been backed up by resources provided in the description for the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hello listeners, Jason Futch here, and I want to bring to everyone's attention a very cool true crime podcast that's out there, Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. It is hosted by sister-in-laws Nat and Ash as they share cold cases from their home state of Vermont. But don't let that fool you because they also talk about cases from across the United States and around the world. As a matter of fact, I was just recently a guest on their podcast as me and my colleagues from the Fenley Creek Jane Doe Task Force discussed the case of Fenley Creek Jane Doe and her unborn child that was buried in the hills of Eastern Oregon in the late 1970s. Check them out. They are awesome. You can listen to them wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also find them on Facebook and Twitter. Just type in Crime Time Nerds and they pop up right there. So go ahead, check them out. Really cool podcast, and I highly encourage everyone to listen. listening to another episode of From the Vault, a true crime podcast. I'm Jason Futch, host of this program, and we're going to be going back to a previous episode of True Cold Case Files, when Daisy Chains and I talked about the Sims homicide that occurred in Tallahassee, Florida in October of 1966. That was a very long time ago. And we go in-depth with it and discuss the case, what happened that night, and the persons of interest that were possibly involved in this case. We touch up on all of that and then some. So it's something you don't want to miss. We reformatted. We've also remastered this episode. So it's going to come out a lot clearer and a lot shorter than the original version of this podcast. It's been edited for time and we got rid of some of the unnecessary stuff in the podcast. So with that being said, I want to go ahead and present this episode to you. And at the end of the show, I will be giving you all the number to the Big Bend Crime Stoppers. So if you have a tip regarding this case... Do not hesitate to reach out to the Big Bend Crime Stoppers, and then they will forward that information over to the Leon County Sheriff's Office and see to it that they get the information that you submitted. We'll be back next week. Nick Wagler and I will be talking about Septic Tank Sam. That is a very disturbing case. I just want to go ahead and give you guys a heads up on that. So a listener discretion will definitely be advised. We've decided to move that episode up after the revelation from the McAllister family. We found out that Leslie and Bill's older daughter passed away, Caitlin McAllister, who was Taylor McAllister, 
Alistair's sister. We were going to cover Taylor's case on the next episode, but unfortunately, due to those circumstances, we've decided to bump up Septic Tank Sam's episode in the meantime, so that way family can grieve. So with that being said, here is our episode on The Sims Homicide. This event that we're about to discuss changed all that in literally a day. You went from security to essentially arming yourselves and making sure that you, your family, and everyone else that you knew was safe. So let's begin. On October 22nd, both Norma and Judith were out babysitting. This was the same night the Mississippi State Bulldogs would visit the Florida State Seminoles at Dope Campbell Stadium as they played football. It was a football night. And then on top of that, you also had the Florida State Fair. So thousands, thousands of people from across the state and around the region are descending upon Tallahassee to go have themselves a good time, whether it be riding the Ferris wheel or tossing the pigskin. It was a good time. And down south, they go all out for these kind of things. And at home, over at 641 Muriel Court, Dr. Robert and Helen were listening to the game on the radio while their young daughter Joy stayed at home. As the game had wrapped up, something bad happened when Norma Sims returned home from her babysitting gig. She noticed that the radio and television had been on, a coffee cup sitting on the kitchen counter, but no one was around. And then she goes into her parents' bedroom and she finds her dad, her mom, and her baby sister bound, gagged, and shot. Her dad's lying on the bed while on the side of the bed, diagonally, her baby sister and her mom are lying on the floor. One of the most graphic things about this is that all three of them had been shot in the head. Execution style, if you will. And not only just that, that wasn't enough for this sick bastard. He also pulled her shirt up, stabbed her in the abdomen six times, pulled her underwear around her ankles, and <laughs> according to reports... I don't think it was just a he. I think it was a he and somebody else. I think it was two people. Not one person could do all that shit to right. three people. Not I, just one person. I completely agree with that. Uh, this was this had to have been a tag team situation here. And, they were, and, and with the two different ways of killing, the shooting and the stabbing so one person stabbed one person shot the person stabbed and had a different motivation for stabbing that little girl that many times and the person who shot had a motivation to silence the people they shot yeah so what this tells me is that there was a tension on this little girl why there was yes. a tension we might have the answers to that but stay tuned because there's a lot to go over in this case because this is a really fucked up case once we really get deep into it skeletons start spilling out Really crazy stuff starts to happen. Jeanette Sims, uh, Norma Jeanette Sims, walks into the room, sees these bodies all over the place, and she calls Bevis Funeral Home in Tallahassee. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. The reason she called the funeral home right away was this was different times. Back then, the city did not provide ambulatory services. Typically, that was on the funeral home that did that. They had you a private... didn't have 911 in existence yet either. Exactly. 911 did not exist in 1966. So there were other ways by which people tried to receive help. The funeral services were the ones who handled the ambulatory services typically for people who are already deceased and that's the only number she had available yep and yeah she called them and as soon as they picked up one of the first words in fact russell bevis had attested to this in previous interviews that he did with police when he answered the phone the first words that came from norma were something terrible has happened 
please come. And when you hear that in 1966, and depending on the tone of voice she was pre presenting that in, it was either, okay, we'll be right away, or, oh shit, something bad has really happened. We gotta get there fast. Yeah. And that was the latter. Once they arrived to the scene, in fact, uh, Russell and Rocky, who's Russell's 16-year-old son, who's working with him, they're literally the first ones to arrive on the scene. When they get there, the first thing Russell wants to do is free these people, get them out of these binds so that way they can get help. So he tells Rocky to go fetch him a knife so he can cut these uh, binds from their bodies, and he does, and then they contact law enforcement. And so right now, at this point, life-saving measures are happening. The parents, surprisingly, are still alive. Joy has long been dead, but Robert and Helen at this point are still alive. And based on the body temperature of Joy's, the perpetrators had only been there shortly before Norma got there. What ended up happening was Russell asked to shut all the lights off in the house because they weren't necessarily sure that the perpetrator was out of the house or perpetrators. They could have still very mm -hmm. well have been in the house still. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we don't even know if they could have been walking away from the scene when when, you know, other people were uh, driving up or even when uh, Norma herself was dropped back off back at her house, you know, for all we know. She and we don't we can't speak with her to know this, but you know, part of me wants to ask, did you see anybody strange walking down the street when you were arriving back home? So yeah, it's just they could have been anywhere at this point near uh, because the crime had just occurred right before Norma got home. I mean, it, she had gotten home. Either she was spared because they didn't want to kill her and they felt like she would be too much to handle, or she was just got there at the nick of time right afterwards mm -hmm. where she was safe. Oh yeah, and I just wonder too, what would have happened if all of the family members were there, if all five of them were there. I feel like they would have been bypassed. Either that or these people would have been brazen enough to kill every single one of them. Mm. I don't know. It, like, it's just a thought. It's one of those thoughts that I have. Is like, what if both of the other daughters were still there? Would they I think they would have attacked anyways, but I don't think they would have been as successful at murdering everybody. Right. It just depends. Then again, if nobody would have came home to stop them, they could have possibly potentially had time and means to murder everybody so mm -hmm. i think you know they would have tried anyways i mean just the sheer fact of trying to kill three people in a home i don't think if i would make a difference either sure. especially if it's women young girls yeah and that's mainly you know like i said you, there were no brothers or anything like that in this family the only man in the house was dr robert so it would have been an interesting situation for sure uh but when law enforcement arrived dr robert passed away at the scene there was no way he was going to be saved. I mean, his injuries were pretty severe. And the reports are conflicting. I've read where he died at the scene of the crime, and then there's areas where I see that he died en route to the hospitals. Yeah, I've just heard reports that when Norma arrived home that they were still gurgling or alive and that mm -hmm. the funeral home director and his son tried to help both parties. But, yeah, I don't know if the father passed away before he got in the ambulance or what, or on the way, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's such a such a sad situation though. it's like wow I mean well because you know they're trying to hold on so they could tell the police who the bastards were you know yeah <sighs> you know I think so too it's interesting enough because of this case a turf war happens and I'm going to explain that we don't use that word unless we're talking about gang activity in this instance we're talking about law enforcement one of the first to arrive at the scene is the Tallahassee police detective his name is Cooper Donnelly when he gets 
gets to the scene, uh, one of the first things that he remarked was how Joy's eyes were still open and staring at him. And uh, he said that her eyes were open, looking at him. They were a clear blue. And they seemed to say, solve this. Don't forget about me. That's got to leave a mark in your brain for the rest of your life, for sure. Yeah, when you look into somebody's eye, my mom, her brother died in her arms. He was only about 18, and she was in her early 20s. And she said, when he let out his last breath, I'll never forget how green his eyes were. Mm. They're the greenest I've ever seen them. And um, I think when you look in somebody's eyes when they're dying or after death, there's this real imploration that there's this real feeling of them trying to implore you, trying to ask you, trying to beg you in those eyes. And yeah, I could see that for him. Yeah. And you know, it's crazy too. When we talk about past other homicide cases, usually detectives will remark about eyes. Like they can't forget the look in their eyes. Yep. Yep. Um, the eyes. Yep. Eyes are the window to the soul, you know. Yep. And you're like, what are you trying to, what's your soul trying to still tell me? What's left of your soul in there? What is it trying to tell me through those eyes, you know? Yep. Something else happens while this is going on. Larry Campbell who's a 24-year-old sheriff's deputy, he arrives at the scene. He works for the Leon County Sheriff's Office at the time. He shows up, and then shortly after is Sheriff Bill Joyce and company. When Sheriff Joyce walks into that house, sees those bodies on the floor, he puts his feet on the couch, he lights up a cigarette, and he says, this is going to be a long night, put on some coffee. They did that. But guess what? They put on the Sims family's coffee pot. They basically contaminated the crime scene. Oh. This is, okay, to, I just kind of want to hit on a little bit of, uh, you know, a connection here. Yeah. The reason why the genre Bonnet Ramsey case was never ever solved and I believe that was an intruder I don't think her family did it um, was because the Boulder PD had never handled a case of a child ransom and murder and because of this reason when they went into that house the Boulder PD went in guns blazing, no protocol. They had no idea of how you're supposed to actually conduct an investigation and collect evidence in these kind of situations. It's just a small town like Tallahassee who had never dealt with a crime as such as what happened to the Sims. Yeah. Um, so when you have contamination of evidence, it's typically because the police force, they had never really dealt with this kind of crime before and they didn't understand the protocol and the importance of collecting that evidence. And many times too, there's emotions that are running high since they haven't dealt with that kind of crime and they're not thinking as logically as normal as they would with other evidence collecting situations and crimes that don't involve a little girl who's been stabbed multiple times and uh, her parents murdered along with her. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's definitely one of those situations where this crime scene was completely contaminated where Sheriff Joyce and others were using the family ashtray to dump cigarette ash in and put their butts out in. And then you had them using the dishware and items from the family kitchen. And then on top of that, there was Latin prints that came out from the family car that belonged to Sheriff Joyce. And then on top of that, they were letting people walk in and out of the house. Not only just deputies Law and stuff. but neighbors. But neighbors. <laughs> neighbors. Holy crap. Yeah. It turned into a well, circus. They even, they even 
you know, they saw people who we'll later talk about as being strange at the scene of the crime, mm -hmm. um, acting strange. Yeah. <laughs> They've just allowed anybody to be there, apparently, right. no matter how strange they seem. Now, so. Nowadays, at a crime scene, they won't let anybody get close, not even the news media. They, they, no. they, they want you away from the scene. But the ones that they do let the news media get too close, you can bet they're not going to be solved, just so you guys know. <laughs> yeah, agreed. But yeah, so this became a huge, huge deal. Gotta say, everyone went to bed that night feeling good because FSU just got a nice win over Mississippi State. They went 10-0. and They shut them out that night. And then they wake up to the horrible news that a family had just been massacred in the, I think it was like the northeast section of town. Were there any signs of intruders, you know, anything yeah. broken into with so, this crime scene? Is just So one of the things that they noticed that there was like a lot, there were trampled shrubs on the side of the house. There was a possibility that someone may have been looking in the window prior to what uh, happened. Prowler. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a prowler situation. Mm -hmm. and, and the investigators were combing the area for any kind of weapon or seeing if there was any kind of trail. In fact, there was like a little swamp behind the Sims house uh, that they dredged because they wanted to see if perhaps a murdered weapon was thrown into the little pond. They weren't yeah. able to find any, of course, but... It, so are we thinking whoever this individual was they were prowling, watching the family or possibly the little girl since she seems to be the target sure. and possibly the father caught that person doing that and there was an altercation of sorts, that person and somebody mm. else because this prowler, we believe they might have had somebody with them at this point. Yeah. It's just one person can't subdue three. Um, so we're thinking maybe the father looks out the window, what is this guy looking at my daughter? Why, hey, you creep, why are you looking at my daughter? And instead of the creep running off with his friend, they run inside when the doors open. Yeah. You know? And they and they're not they don't wanna be in trouble because it might just be that this little girl who's being watched had something happen to her before when she was playing outside by the same person who's watching her. We all know how pedophiles work, you know. Um there's something there's something there i'm glad you told me that i never knew that so I, I bet that's a big part of the crime and what happened and what led to the acceleration shall we say sure of events yeah and, and you know the the law enforcement they wanted to really check everything out they didn't want to miss anything in this investigation because <laughs> because they're like i said 66 is a rare time to be in the middle of a triple homicide so they wanted to make sure everything Everything was checked out, but I think one of the things they failed on was securing that crime scene because I think yeah. that crime scene could have had a lot of answers. However, uh, Jeremy Mutz attests that there is still usable, viable DNA evidence in this case. So that's good because I know there was little sign of struggle. Even, you know, the detectives at first were really surprised at how, you know, there just wasn't many things knocked over in yeah. the house. It was um, clean. You know, there was like tea still on the table. It wasn't thrown, you know, yeah. um, like things like this. And so that's why they, that's why I'm so happy. They actually got some physical evidence because the crime scene was just so uh, not, not, besides the bodies obviously there was right. nothing really there that you could yeah. see that was obvious right exactly and, and, you know based on a lot of the information that we're going to talk about later in this episode uh i want to go back to jeremy mutz for a minute because he he did quite a few interviews online with me uh, you know on facebook and stuff like that um he was telling him telling he was talking about how if 
if today the sheriff's office named a suspect, would there be enough evidence to go to a grand jury and essentially have these people arrested? He said yes. There would be plenty of evidence to arrest somebody in this case right now. They could name a suspect and arrest somebody. But mm-hmm. I don't want I don't want to get too far ahead of myself right now. <laughs> I hope they arrest that bastard. What's are those bastards? Okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, so but then mm-hmm. something interesting came up. Uh, and it was Helen's employment. So earlier we talked about how Helen was employed by First Baptist Church as Pastor C.A. Roberts' secretary, there was a rumor that it came up that Helen Sims had quit her job because she did leave her position shortly before she was murdered. Uh, And the the rumors uh, that surfaced was that she left her position because either she was having an affair with Pastor Roberts, um, although, you know, that might that has already been ruled out that she knew about his time, philandering. But at the time they thought that could have been something but now we know it's not yeah right and then also basically yeah they, they, they ruled it out but essentially what ended up coming out of this investigation was that pastor roberts was a philanderer um, they went around his office. Let's just let's just be a little real. And I'm going to yeah. try to give you guys a visual. They literally went around this pastor's office with a black light, oh, and yeah. the place lit up. That's all I'm going to say. And they Jesus. literally did that. His office had um, sperm all over the place. That's all we're going to say. That's all we're going to say. And did that give you enough visual? You know what the guy was up to. Oh, all right, let's my go on. <laughs> well, and that's what they did. They said they did that. Their yeah. like, the room lit up. His office lit up like there was everywhere. Yeah. Excrement, male excrement everywhere. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so, you know, based off this accusation, he, he, he became the first prime suspect in this case. And so they did the black light test. Yeah, there was semen all over the place. And how you get semen all over the place, I, I don't know. I mean, I thought you either wrapped uh, it. Whether it's you by yourself or with somebody that else. That too. But damn. <laughs> you could be a real artist. Just imagine all the uh, people. But also many women... Many women came forward, though, saying that they he had made them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's really what's, what kicked this into place. It wasn't so much uh, Helen. It was all these women after this happened saying, you know, she she stopped working for him about a week before she, she was murdered, you see. And also, he was inappropriate with me. And I know he was inappropriate with many other women. I didn't like it. And I told him no, but I know other women who said yes. You know, that kind of gossip. <laughs> So that's yeah. to get out. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. but and so you know that's that was one of the motivations that may that that Pastor Roberts could have actually had to kill her was that either he that she knew too much, or that she was not willing to take advantage of his advantages, if you know what I mean. Uh, yep. So so yeah, like. I could see where he would want to shut her up, but I, but in a situation like that, wouldn't bribery be a better route to go? Exactly, and churches are notorious for being able to find their own money that's tax free, <laughs> right? But essentially, as we dig deep into Pastor Roberts's uh, whereabouts that night, 
he would have never been able to go to 641 Muriel Court because he was at Doak Campbell Stadium as Florida State University's team chaplain. And there's, yeah, there's video evidence of him at the game the whole time. Mm -hmm. So they basically said, okay, his alibi is solid. Right, and so that's the thing. Some people still had theories, well, maybe he ordered some women to go do it or something like that. You know, for a little while, people still kind of looked at him side-eyed. But for the most part, he himself... And his body could not have been there well, at the time of the crime. Well, there was also this other interesting theory, too, is that uh, I think they said toward the end of the second quarter, going into halftime, he was nowhere to be seen. And then before the second half of the football game started, he came back to the stadium. He had scratches on his face. His clothes were dirty. Uh, stuff well, like people that. people alleged that he did, but then yeah. the detectives met him. He had no scratches on his face. Right. They looked at the video. He was only not in the frame and gone for like three minutes. They're like, yeah, like you got out of the stadium, through the traffic, over the house, and killed people in three minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the police even like, you know, broke down which routes he could have taken from the stadium to get mm-hmm. to the house and get back, see if they could see if it would make sense for him to get from the stadium to the house and back just in time for the third quarter. Yeah, it just didn't match up. So uh, essentially, yeah, as good of a buck as it would have made, <laughs> it right? Just wasn't the pastor exactly? Yeah. And as we mentioned, you know, even though he was innocent in this case. More and more skeletons begin to come out of his closet concerning the parishioners. And on top of that, even though uh, he was a big womanizer, I think this gave a, a, a number of people in the city a reason to hate him and call for his mm-hmm. resignation because, once again, he was also pro-civil rights. He was a big yeah. supporter of integration and that he believed everyone should be created equally. However, in the state of Florida, in the late 50s and 60s, uh, racial tension was happening. Uh, This was basically like right in the middle of the civil rights movement. So... So he made a lot of enemies between those two things. Between saying, oh, I want everybody to be free and equal and love each other and and have the same opportunities. And also the strange, uh, like hypocrite critical uh, lifestyle of you know engaging in philanderous activity with women's uh yeah people are not going to like you right. <laughs> they're not going to like you at that time in the south uh, in that place no, right no, no. well you know he did eventually resign from his position and he moved out of state as well he, he just had to get out of town because uh you know, at this point, oh, there yeah. was no there was no way he was going to be able to repair his image uh, in Tallahassee. Nope. So he left, nope. and then a few years later, he was killed in a car accident. He was in his, I think, mid-30s, late-30s when he got killed. Um, yeah, and he died in this vehicle accident, his dignity far from intact, which is really sad when you think about it. That. that is very sad. I mean, it's like, you know, people have their weird quirks and their bad stuff, but at the end of the day, we're all humans, and yeah. you know, it's sad. Believe it or not, I did want to add this last footnote about uh, Pastor Roberts. Uh, he remained a person of interest until the 80s, uh, and Sheriff Campbell at this point explicitly stated that he was definitely sure Pastor Roberts had nothing to do with the case. Essentially, the sheriff exonerated him. He was exonerated. He didn't have to worry about it. If he was still alive today, 
he wouldn't have to worry about this. Yeah, the preacher was exonerated, so. Yeah. And so. That's good. Uh, according to Sheriff Bill Joyce in 1969, this was uh, a few years later, a number of people were identified as having been in contact with the Sims prior to their deaths, including three men from Wyoming, a piano tuner, the Fuller Brush Man, and the maid. The, the family did have a maid at the time, too. Um, however, an interesting contradiction occurs here. Sheriff Joyce also rules out that sexual elements to the crime, or he ruled out sexual elements to the crime, despite the fact that Joy had her underwear around her ankles. However, yeah. uh, Ed Yarborough of uh, the Florida Sheriff's Bureau disagreed with uh, Sheriff Joyce's finding, saying that this was the work of a sexually deranged person, a sex maniac. And he uh, gave this quote uh, to the Palm Beach Post on October 25th of 1966. Now, interesting enough that in 2006 would be the year that everyone would find out about Joy's underwear being around her ankles. This was a hidden fact. Um, why it was hidden from the public for so long, I don't know. But it eventually came out. And essentially, the sheriff of Leon County and the head of the Florida Sheriff's Bureau, they had this disagreement about what happened. I think Sheriff Joyce was trying to be moral about this because, remember, the 60s were a different time. You, would, you didn't just go out and say, oh, she was raped, she was penetrated, you know. You would keep that hush-hush. He was trying to be modest. Yeah. It might also be the classic element of they didn't keep let anybody else hear that piece of information because if there's a confession, they want the only person who was there who can qualify all of the crime scene and what happened there to be able to say her underwear was down. Nobody else would know that except for the, the perpetrator or perpetrators. So a that lot point. of reasons why it's because of that, too. Yeah, you got a point there. I That, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, only he would know that. Um, yeah. I mean, most of the time when they keep out information, it's because they are only going to have a conviction based on a confession. Therefore, they need to know and have proof that the person who is confessing was actually there and knows things that nobody else would know unless they were there on the day that it right. happened. So that's why they leave out information. Yeah. And and so... It's an investigative tactic. Mm-hmm. Robert passed away either at the crime scene or en route to the hospital. Joy was already dead. But Mrs. Sims, Helen Sims, hung on for nine days in a coma. She hung on for nine days, and she died in the hospital. Uh, and then when she passed away, an autopsy was done, and uh, she had other injuries, more specifically to her legs. Um, but she also had a bullet in her head that was so deep in the brain that if they were to remove it, it would have killed her instantly. So they were not able to get to the bullet. However, perhaps had they been able to dislodge it, maybe perhaps she would, you know, safely, of course, uh, maybe she'd still be alive today. I'm sure there's like procedures now to where they can, they would be able to get it out safely, but... Uh, they probably understand the brain so much more now than they did then. Right. Know, especially with gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. So the intention of the family, because you got to remember at this point now, someone made two girls an orphan, never expected this to happen. Um, so the family had to figure out what they're going to do with the bodies. 
Are they going to bury them in Tallahassee or take them back home to Mississippi? The funeral was paid for uh, by donors. And the governor of Florida at the time, Hayden Burns, who was a former Jacksonville mayor, uh, he actually personally saw to it that the Sims were transported back to Mississippi. Uh, he made sure that their bodies were loaded up onto the governor's airplane and flown to Meridian. I, I commend him for that. He made sure the bodies were taken care of. And then after that, the, the Sims orphans relocated to Alabama with relatives. And, well, for years, this case slowed down a little bit. Um, the only other time we really hear about this is in 1980. Leon County Sheriff at the time, Ken Katsaris, you might remember that name, he was known for his role in the apprehension and conviction of Ted Bundy for the Chi Omega murders, announced that he would be reopening the case after he received a tip that a death row inmate in another state had ties to the Sims and his murders that he was, you know, going to death row for were very similar to the ones that befell the Sims. However, subsequent documents would rule this guy out. I know who the inmate is. Do you really? That one suspect, yeah. Who? He was a he was a seven he was a seventeen year old boy at the time of the crimes. He lived around um, the corner, about like three blocks down from the Sims, and he was very smart, very good looking. Um, even the women he talked about and they're just like, oh, he was just, you know, so cute, so smart, so witty, uh, sweet kid. But unfortunately, between the ages of 18 to 25, schizophrenia befell him. And unfortunately, he moved to Atlanta. And by the time he was in his, uh, I believe, late 20s, mid 30s, he was found um, in a home with a liver in a jar and a dismembered body. Oh. Um, and he, unfortunately, yeah, was a victim of schizophrenia and a mental health system gone to crap. Uh, but when they looked into it, he was his alibi the night of the Sims murder was he was actually at a party with friends. Um, and a, a whole bunch of the kids who were um, around that night could yeah. corroborate that he was there. Interesting. I forgot. So that's, that's who it was. Oh, yeah. Because now that you mentioned that, I remember reading that, but I just it, but it was a while back and I don't remember it. Uh, I should yeah, have remembered so that's that. What's, it's just so sad, though, that, you know, we they, the way they describe him at the time of the crime. Oh, you know, a good kid, very good grades, very good looking. And we see this with schizophrenia quite often that before... Um, the, the the syndrome or disease hits, I'm not sure which to call it. Um, most of the people who have it are very intelligent. Oh, yeah. Very, very, they have great faculties before it sets them. Oh, so yeah. I, 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 knew, to hear. I, I knew a guy who was, you know, he, he had bad schizophrenia, but really smart dude, really, really smart dude. Uh, mm. <clears throat> I mean, he knew it. I remember one thing, he, he knew... He knew his stuff about rockets. That's for sure. Yeah. He knew he knew yeah. knowledgeable information about rockets. However, uh, he would claim that he worked for NASA and stuff like that. And well, they uh, think schizophrenia is a virus, possibly. So that's that's what scientists are trying to figure out: is if it's actually viral, if it's something you can catch, like yeah. syphilis and other things. Syphilis has schizotypal qualities as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's what happened to that. That's who that inmate was. 
with, which also begs the question, why didn't they have him in a mental institution? And instead he's on death row. That just makes me sad. I mean, he shouldn't have done what he did, but maybe if he had been medicated, taken care of by the system, right. that would have happened. And then in the late 1980s, uh, a familiar name pops up again, Larry Campbell. He runs for sheriff of Leon County at this point, having a very stellar career in law enforcement and in the military. Uh, you know, he's running for sheriff. He wins and he essentially reopens this case. Uh, and this time he takes a real lengthy look into it because you got to remember when he first saw this case, he was a 24 year old sheriff's deputy who had limited powers as to what he could do. He was a beat officer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So he really wanted to look at this case because this case really bothered him because like that Tallahassee police detective we talked about earlier. All Larry Campbell could talk about was how he remembered seeing Joy's eyes open and looking at him. That's all he could remember. And that this was a turning point for a tiny community that lost its innocence that day. And then it was at this point, a woman named Mary Charles LaJoy comes forward and uh, she was off, she was fresh off of a divorce from her husband. His name, Vernon Fox. The two lived in the same neighborhood as the Sims and as the guy we just aforementioned with the liver in the jar. Um, and uh, they lived in the same neighborhood when the Sims were murdered. And one of the sick things about this case is that Vernon had a fatuation with younger girls, even so far as to quoting in, in the documentary that we saw, 641 Muriel Court, that as a mid-teen, he had been lusting towards Mary while she was in third grade and remembers he remembers her jumping on a bed like and well, watching I remember her. this part of the documentary Ugh. and the way he okay you guys the way he's he says he he's like she was so beautiful jumping on that bed and his tongue slides across his bottom lip in a, such a sexually sadistic way um, that only somebody who's who's been molested or can pick up on that stuff might pick up on it. But I definitely picked up on it. And he, uh, the moment he was recounting that that girl in the third grade, he was getting off on it. For uh, sure, it was obvious. Yeah, so, um, yeah. I don't know. The way he talks about it is just sick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got you could essentially got a firsthand account of a pedophile in that documentary. Yeah, you know. So he essentially, from this documentary I watched, and this is Jason. I, I wrote this to you when you first told me about this case. I said, I know this sounds weird, but I'm getting somebody watching the little girl playing in her backyard or a culvert with other little girls. I'm getting this vision of this guy from like behind her house, like on the other side of the culvert, you know, but watching in, in the green under a tree, you know, um, and you're like, ooh. And was this person, Vernon, who was essentially, you know, had had interest in children and was he ever convicted pedophile? No, or no. In fact, something it's it's interesting. We talk about this because, you know, Vernon Fox was not a, uh, he was not a convicted sex offender. He had no run ins with the law other than a speeding ticket. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he was also the son of a famous uh, criminologist. Criminologist. Named Vernon, yeah. name, also named Vernon Fox Sr. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him, actually. Um, Vernon's father was a well-known criminologist who had been teaching at Florida State University. In fact, in 1974, Vernon Fox Sr. wrote a book on prison riots that would be a top book for people who wanted to be in the law enforcement profession. Um, And also Mary's father also had a connection with FSU. If I'm not mistaken, I believe her father was a janitor there. Was her father? She was, um, but it wasn't her birth father. Right, right. Her Mm -hmm. foster foster dad. So just her foster dad, basically. Yeah. So this is Vernon's, who would become Vernon's wife, okay, who ends up going to the police later. She had the janitor uh, foster father over at FSU, right? Right, whereas basically Vernon's father was a genius, just like Dr. Robert, uh, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy when you think about that because, you know, uh, these are here we are, you know, these families come from well, basically from money. However, uh, from what I understand, Vernon had a rough upbringing because Vernon Sr. was also an alcoholic. He was a depressive alcoholic. So Mm -hmm. uh, I've never had to deal with a depressive alcoholic, but I just... I have. They're super fucking terrible. And my dad worked for the NSA and FBI. So there you go. I know what Vernon was going through. Hey, Vernon, I feel you, but I didn't go murder people. Okay, let's go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So, so... Uh, uh, (laughs) A little fact you guys know about daisy chains now and why she knows so much shit. Her dad was a spook. All right, let's go. So, so Mary, she goes to the... Leon County Sheriff's Office building in 1987 uh, to be interviewed by Sheriff Campbell and one other person. And she brings up that after the Sims murder, her and Vernon left Florida after getting married. But what was damning was that she claimed to have been at the Sims house the night of the murders and Vernon had been with her. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary was an odd person. Let's just go ahead and clear the air here right now about her. There's uh, okay. One thing I'll say is seeing the pictures of her, there's such a lack of affect in her face. Mm-hmm. Her eyes are very muted. She's very muted. Her eyes are very glazed over. Yeah. Um, in fact, it made me wonder when I looked at pictures of her and given the fact that she was a foster child, if she was sexually abused by her foster parents oh. or many men in her life, because the look in her eyes is that dissociation you have when you mm-hmm. have been touched by people your whole life and didn't want to be touched ah. and you've lost yourself because of it. That look, you know what I'm talking about, Jason. Oh, yeah. When you look at that picture of her, there's no affect. She is a fragmented, broken yeah. person. And it's the I, saddest picture to see. I wouldn't doubt that at all. In fact, you know, it reminds me, you remember when Annie Doe was identified as Annie Lehman and then we finally understood her story? Um, mm-hmm. Remember looking at Annie's, I just remember looking at Annie's picture thinking the same thing, you know? 
looking at this there broken was a girl. girl you know i knew annie was gonna be a foster kid i had even been sent in maybe it was because i i didn't really look in the case more but there's a little red-headed foster girl out of minnesota that years ago i sent in as a match for annie doe and i think her name was annie um and you know they said well how could it be her i said because she's a foster kid she's already at risk mm-hmm Foster kids are at risk every day in this country. They're not taken care of the yeah. way they should be. A lot of them are just an extra paycheck, yep. an extra meal ticket. Cash cow. Um, and I, I really fear that's what this, what poor, um, what was her name again? Mary. This, this woman, I'm Ma- sorry. Mary Charles. Mary. And in fact, yeah, she, her that's nickname, that's, that's she, her. she also had a nickname. Uh, they, they called her Charlie. I'm assuming based off her middle name, of course, they would call her Charlie. Right, um, right. But for all intents and purposes, I'm going to call her Mary in this uh, in this uh, show today. Uh, okay. Now, now Mary was an odd person in a sense that she, for some reason, was attracted to death, if you will. Um, yeah, very morbid. Very yeah. morbid. And, and people yeah, who, she went into like the actual funeral home that yeah. was owned by the people who later would come to the crime scene, the funeral director and his son. She would show up to their funeral home, uh, break in. And they'd find her trying to steal and dress in funerary garbs. So, the you know, the, the things that they dress you in when they yeah. bomb you and all that stuff before you get into your outfit that your family wants you to wear in the casket. Yeah. She was trying to wear those and steal those, hang out with dead bodies. Sheesh. Necromancy. And, 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 and imagine, imagine if she decided to sleep in one of the caskets, closed it. Oh, I, she would and, have. And she then, have. and she then, well, here's the thing, you know, the last thing you would think is someone would be breaking into your funeral home and then someone walks in and they do like a, a casket viewing for like a family who's looking for a casket, you know, like when they were like picking caskets and stuff. Yeah, right. And then, and then when they open it, when they open it boom, where's this, where did this body come from? Holy crap. And then she wakes up, which adds to the terror of the entire room, you know. Yeah, and then your business as a funeral director is screwed because nobody's going to want to ever go back there again and put the family <laughs> in a casket where there's the weird girl who popped out of one. Yeah. So, right. But that was her thing, you guys. I mean, and so she, you know, went to she went to the police and detectives and she started saying, you know, well, I was there when the crime happened. But she's being very beating around the bush. So, so to speak, yeah. you know, that she's she she hears that there was a reward for ten thousand dollars. She wants to know if, you know, she'll still get that reward money and if she'll have a cushy life. If she confesses, basically, well, if I give you all the information, will you put me somewhere nice and give me $10,000? Yep, exactly. Um, And she was going through, what, the divorce with Vernon at the time. So they're like, well, is this woman just a woman scorned, you know, and she's upset about her divorce and and she just wants to screw this man over? Because she wasn't necessarily directly implicating herself, but she was directly implicating her ex. Essentially, yeah, essentially. And she was using it as like a a dream ruse, if you will. Well, like she was like mm-hmm. the saying it was a vision that she had um, yeah she, she's one of those people where the, the detective had to say well let's say you know if you are in there and this is what happened what would you do she's like well I would say that if that was my intent then I would have done this, that, the other. Right. So it, that's the way she was talking you, about the you know, Not And so that, in that sense, they could not actually get a confession out of her right. because it's not considered a confession well, when it's in that wording and in, in, in a visualized state. You, you, so that's you, what's frustrating. You know what it. that remind? You know what that reminds me of? 
Do you remember uh, last year when O.J. Simpson came out with that uh, interview he did if with I did the lady? It. If, if I, I really did, it. did it. Exactly. So she was doing the verbal account of if I really did it, it yeah. would have been like this. Exactly. I, I, I think, I think she knows something and she was involved, but she wanted to play O.J. Simpson here and and basically tell them about this vision and if she had done it, you know. Um, well, you know, my you know my whole theory with her and Vernon is, you know, Vernon didn't live very far from the Sam's house and he lived close enough. He could watch, watch those girls play when he wanted to, right? Yeah. And when he's a teenager and all this stuff's happening and we have Mary who's just aged out of his age range, which he prefers, Mary's going to be naturally protective of Vernon because she knows what he's doing is wrong, but she still loves him. But she's also naturally going to be very jealous of those little girls who not only are getting his attention, yep. but also of those little girls who have a loving family and loving parents. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. So let's say she's so protective of Vernon that when Vernon goes in and he starts prowling and looking, she's like, Vernon, you can't do this. We can't be doing this. These girls are stupid and ugly. I don't even know why you're into this. I don't even know why you want to do this. And all of a sudden when she's with Vernon, well, Mr. Sims catches him, you know, and and Vernon and him get into an altercation. She ends up helping Vernon out. You know, I feel like mm -hmm. if it wasn't planned, that's how it happened. But it very well could have been planned because she had such a disdain uh, for little girls who had all the things that she couldn't have. Yeah, and, and I just and just the way it was set up, I don't think this was spontaneous. I think this was a planned homicide. Yeah, it could very well be planned because of the 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 um just by the, the only reason why I don't I think it was planned, but I don't think it worked out how they thought. Sure. What, what I mean by that is, I think the Sims patriarch could have possibly caught them looking in or prowling before it happened, and that's how they were able to get in the house and access it without you know yeah. really much of of. Uh, Issue. He could have already opened the door. I don't know. I don't. It's just. It's very interesting to me. Either way, I think it's two people, and I think the motivation for the two was one was attracted to the little girl, and the other one was protective of the person who was attracted to the little girl and wanted to make sure that he didn't go to jail forever. You know. Yeah. Um, for his his love of little children right. and, and the fact that those children's parents might find out what he was doing and yep. get him in trouble. And well, one of the things I noticed too was you know when we were talking about you know uh, uh, Mary's v vision. Uh, you know, she was talking about how she had seen Joy's body on the ground, her shirt up, panties down, and, you know, mm -hmm. like you were mentioning, wondering why she's interested in this girl. Uh, you know, we're talking about that, and in fact, remember, they the public didn't know about the whole panties situation until 2006, when, you know, that was made public, so... Right, so she's confessing and adding information that nobody right. would have publicly known before. Essentially. So how is that not a confession? Yeah, I guess it was the way she worded it. See, that's it. where I'm frustrated. But that's where I'm frustrated. Did the detective tell her 
that the underwear was down at the ankles when she said that because if he didn't that is a fucking confession well i'm gonna she is letting them know information that nobody except for the murderer would have known and so that in and of itself is a confession and it's involuntary but it's a confession well i'm not you know i'm not really sure but all i can tell you this is that in with all due respect to sheriff larry campbell and his legacy he dropped the ball on this investigation. He dropped the ball with this interview, um, you know, because he literally was within grasp of convicting this woman of murder and perhaps Vernon but Fox. But he's not a psychologist, and she had some clear psychological oh. issues, and I think that's where he dropped the ball. Is they should have had a um, a psychologist, like a fr- like a forensic psych-, psych, to talk to her and try to figure out where all of this was coming from and make it more legitimate um, from a clinical standpoint. Well, what was which goes into mental health, you know? Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing, too, is that they offered, you know, that she and Vernon could take polygraph tests, too, to, you know, hey, look, if you do this polygraph, we can either clear you or not. Either way, Mm -hmm. if, if you didn't do it, you're confident you didn't do it, you should take a polygraph test. Uh, and they were willing to foot the bill for it. and um, But it was just that, yeah, I mean, it was essentially a confession in my book. It's a confession in the book of Jeremy Mutz. It's a confession in the book and of then Vernon doesn't corroborate it on his end. So right. I think that might have been a big issue, too. Um, and, and as far as Vernon's concerned, everybody, you know, what's really funny about him is as the years go on, you know, he seems to remarkably remember new information that he didn't tell detectives before. <laughs> yeah. Um, just so happens to exonerate him all of this very new information that just came out of his ass straight out of nowhere yeah I mean, the guy's full of shit we all can see it we're waiting for that dna to come through all right uh he lived right behind this family's house okay and people said that they could see him watching kids and being a weirdo and everybody in the neighborhood knew he and Mary were the weird kids who were up to no fucking good. And this is where I want to be real right now. Because this goes into school shootings, okay? If you see a kid who is acting like a fucking weirdo with a trench coat, and he's talking about Columbine, and he's talking about bombs and acting weird, and, you know, dead people are fun and all this other shit, pay attention to him and get him some help so he doesn't shoot people just like somebody should have paid attention to these two weird kids and gotten them help so that this would not have happened i mean this is the true tragedy when i look at it is we're looking at kids who are from abusive homes who never got help and they ended up becoming monsters Mm -hmm. and that is just unacceptable when you know you could have fixed it right uh But, you know, Vernon, at this point, there's no, I have no sympathy for him because he has gone on almost 50 years now without trying to give so much of a confession, so much of any remorse. There's no remorse in this man when he talks about these cases, uh, when he speaks of these cases and interviews um, of, of, you know, the Sims. And I say cases because we have three different people who were murdered here. When he speaks about them, there is a disconnect and a disassociation from them because he knows if he allowed himself to actually have feelings for one day out of his fucking life and come to terms with what he fucking did, 
he would fucking melt into nothing and fucking go straight to hell. Oh. He would go straight to hell, Wicked Witch style, if you realize what he did. He would yeah. die of a heart attack and be straight in front of Satan if he actually came to terms with what he did. So since he cannot do that, we will make him come to terms. We will guide him to the throne of hell through justice. Sorry so much. And I hope that you find salvation, my friend, before you reach that throne. I really hope you do. And salvation can be found through confession and sitting there and really actually being fucking sorry and every day praying for forgiveness and, every day and, and, wow I, i'm gonna applaud you for that because that took the words right out of my mouth right there you i mean vernon you know and i'm and i'm definitely sure vernon and mary listen to, and, well, <laughs> and mary you know i'm and i'm definitely sure both of them are going to listen to this episode too because as we know as we know vernon has an interesting online footprint uh, where he's been going on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter trying to exonerate himself from this crime. But you know what, if, Vernon? No talk really fucking matters to us unless you give up your DNA and have it compared to the DNA at the crime scene. Agreed. And then we can say, hey, that wasn't you. Yeah. So if you really want people to believe you're innocent, shut your fucking mouth and go to a geneticist, okay? Yeah. Thanks. And then have that shit sent over to the fucking crime lab. Let's Because we don't care about any of your words anymore in a day of modern science. Words mean fucking nothing yep. when we have genealogy. So yep. Get with it, bro. Let's talk that, more. This point, you're just incriminating yourself more the more you talk. You know? Yeah, I mean, less talk, more action. We have technology, especially in the state of Florida now, where they just opened up a cold case unit where they're using specifically genetic, genetic genealogy on cases where they have existing DNA. And the Sims case is probably in this, in this program. And Vernon, if you have the gumption, get your DNA tested, go do that. Clear yourself officially. If there's the small chance, my friend, that you are innocent, my sincerest apologies, but it sure as heck just don't look like it, you know? Yeah, I mean... Uh, it it this, doesn't look like it. This doesn't look good. I mean, this really doesn't look good for Vernon. This doesn't look <laughs> good for Mary. Because there's, there's, you know, there's other facts that we need to hit on, like he and... They're, they're only... Um, alibi, Vernon and Mary, was before the murders happened, they went and saw the Monsters movie. So they yeah. went to a movie together, they said. Yep. And it just so happens that when the movie was over, Mary says that she dropped Vernon off and saw him walking down towards the Sims Street. And there was a car actually coming from the area where the Sims house was. So she believes that that car actually was the people that could have committed the crime. When in fact, she's just scared that the right. people in that car could identify her and Vernon being near the scene of the crime when right. it happened. Um, so, you know, they actually have no alibi apart from each other. Yeah. And, uh, and their only alibi is, oh, well, I dropped him off. And it would have been around the time that the crimes happened. Yeah, and then so, and then um, and then uh, uh, Vernon's yeah. Vernon's story, you know, you know, compared to hers, is different as well. Uh, remember when he was talking about how you know instead of the monsters movie, as Mary was saying, they were at Lovers Lane having sex. Yep. 
And yeah, then, he said, yeah, it, yeah, it changed from, oh, they left, they parted ways, and she dropped them off to, oh, we went to a lover's lane and had sex after the movie. Yeah, and well, this which was, yeah, and, and, and Vernon's story continues to change through the years, you know, the, the yes, more he, yes. the more he gets active on the internet, uh, this, the, the schizophrenia gets to him pretty bad, so. Yeah, something, something, or something, like that. something, something. God bless them, you know, I, uh, I didn't mean earlier about the hell thing. I was just very, very mad. I was thinking about that little girl's body. I was thinking about that family. It really yeah. was, and it made me angry, and I shouldn't be coming from that. What I should say is, there is salvation for all of us, even the worst sinner, even the thief on the cross was given salvation. So Vernon, I hate saying it like this, but bro, come clean, do the right thing. And at least in this life, you could be known for at least having the balls to, to confess and, and take take the punishment that you I, deserve. I, I mean, that's all you have left anymore, bro. Like, yeah. that's all you have left. If you truly did this, that's all you have left to make you a good, somewhat of a decent person. Uh, I mean, and you, and know, you can get back some decency through confession. Yeah, and, and you know, even though he's trying, he's trying, trying, trying to redeem himself... Uh, by going mm -hmm. online and stuff. Uh, he's been met, obviously, with very little sympathy. In fact, uh, a number of Joy's friends, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, now she would be in her early 60s today. Um, a, a lot of her friends uh, have been rebuking Vernon, and they're pretty certain that he and Mary are the murderers. In fact, I remember yeah. going on Reddit where Vernon had mentioned something about him not being the murderer, and one of Joy's friends pops up on there, and he's like, and she, he's, and she's literally calling him a fucking liar and a fucking asshole and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and a selfish piece mm -hmm. of shit. Like the profanity was profound. <laughs> yeah, and, so she must have had a reason to be that upset, and. Uh, yeah, they, you know, another thing about Vernon that's interesting was after the crime, he was seen at the scene of yeah. the crime, uh, like outside of the house. And they wouldn't say exactly what he was doing. They just said he was gesticulating and acting very strangely, um, which means moving the arms about in a, in a repetitive pattern, um, um, you know, acting very strange with his physicality and standing outside the house watching everything. And that mm -hmm. is like... Murder 101, many murderers were sadistic murderers who do it because they're sadistic, love to watch the scene afterwards and see the people in pain and, and watch everything be processed. That's a big part of their psychopathy is actually staying at the scene of the crime after to watch. Yep, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, we're pretty much, you know, talking about these two individuals. I mean, it went from us theorizing and talking about the victims so now we're really going in depth with what we know about the people of interest in this case and we know quite a bit now thanks to a documentary that uh kyle jones from florida state university had uh created called uh 641 muriel court you can find that on uh vimeo that is it's like a youtube and youtube and youtube yeah, as well yeah, youtube vimeo any of that yeah it's yeah. really it's, it's pretty important it's not that long either That's no good. 
good thing. So yeah. if you don't have much time, you're super busy, you could at least get as, as much information as you need in about yeah. 30 minutes, I'd yeah. say. It, it's, it, so, yeah, it's a very, very good, informative uh, documentary. In fact, uh, what you'll find in the documentary is clips of the actual interview that Mary did with Sheriff Campbell, the, the interrogation, and which I wanted to actually follow up about how Sheriff Campbell dropped the ball in this case. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, she's going on and on about about the case, about how she saw this. She saw the bodies on the ground, the girl, and then also insulting the Sims children, too, like calling them ugly and stuff like that. Um, you know, while this is yeah, happening. Yeah, because she was jealous. Yeah. She was jealous because they were getting Vernon's attention, not hers. Right. Yeah. And they had the life she didn't have. Exactly. But here's where Sheriff Campbell inexplicitly drops the ball. Mary asks him what would happen if she admits to being in the Sims home, if she admits to it, you know, vis-a-vis. -vis. He tells her that she would be going to jail. Yep. He told her she was going to jail if she confesses to this crime. How could he do that? Like, I mean, I get he was trying to be honest with her, but why yeah. be honest when you were so damn close to catching the perp? Oh, well, what she was doing, too, was she was trying to negotiate where she would stay, and she was uh, trying to negotiate a mental institution. Yeah, that's and what so I remember, when he yeah. said, And she said, so can, do you think you could get me into it? Because there were two mental institutions that were quite cushy that she kept talking about. And she yeah. Said, if I give you the information, will you let me into one of these? Chattahoochee and McClendon. She said, McClendon. no, I'm not, you're going to go to jail. That's not what we do. We don't just send murderers to a mental institution. So, they typically go to jail first. So here's my thing um, about that. Here's my thing about that. And this is a personal thought. Uh, okay. Yeah, so she was uh, she offered McClenny, which is uh, the state hospital in Baker County, Florida, and then there's the famous mm -hmm. Chattahoochee. The thing is, is that I personally believe personally believe that had they caught her, and you know, had they charged her with a crime and charged Vernon with a crime, I personally think the Nut House probably would have benefited her. Um, I think because well, I think of the situation. What he situation. should have done when she was saying that, when she said, "What what can we do?" was he should have tried to look into any legal, like you said, any legal way instead of immediately saying, "Oh no, you're going to jail." He should have said, "Well, let me look into that for you." Yeah. And really seeing if there was any way that he could have set that up and then, you know, get the confession and just ship right. her up there and then put Vernon in prison. Right. Yeah. Because I think personally. Because Vernon seemed to be the the, uh, the worser of the two offenders oh, as sure. far as, well, possibly, potentially. I mean, we don't know how much of a role she played. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah. essentially, even though he didn't kidnap her, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't necessarily forcing her to do all this if if in fact they were the ones who committed this crime but he had been grooming her sexually right. her since she was in third grade essentially so, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I feel like it's kind of like a certain form of stockholm syndrome minus the kidnapping definitely part. 
Yeah. Definitely. Um, so, well, most people with dissociative identity disorder who have been abused, yeah, they identify with their abusers, yep. you know. Exactly. And, but yeah, I just think that perhaps, you know, they should have at least explored that option of putting her in the state hospital versus prison. I agree. Which, you know, yeah. and that happens, you know, uh, murders typically, depending on what kind of murder it was, depending on the mental state of the person, sometimes the state hospital is an option. And it's usually yeah, an indefinite state. Yeah, she's obviously off. I mean, she's obvious. She's already yeah. had very strange behavior yeah. in and of herself. Yeah. And, and Meanwhile, Vernon, Vernon obviously is pretty cognitive. He's saying he knew what he was doing was wrong. He should be the one going to prison. That's for sure. Yeah, he's the director. He's the Manson in the situation. Yeah, you know? exactly. He directed everything. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, that's where we're at in this case is that essentially we're looking at two main suspects. And, and, and to be quite honest, folks, I could go on. Daisy could go on uh, this podcast. We could talk about this case for hours and hours because there's loads of information. What you're getting right now is an abbreviated version of this case, <laughs> surprisingly, yeah. considering the podcast is yeah, going an hour and yeah. a half. This is an abbreviated version of the case. There's more theories. There's more to the story. If you go online and look up Sims Homicide Tallahassee, you can go on newspapers.com and look at the information uh, about this case. Um, but we are very interested in motivations, and I do believe a like two motivating factors in this case for right. why the murder occurred was Vernon's uh, you know, prowling ways and his ability to control his mate coupled with, um, you know, we have, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Shoot, shoot, shoot. Oh, yeah. His father, you know, Vernon's hatred for his father, who was in criminal investigations. And that might have played into his want to be a little bit more antisocial and prove his daddy, who's an abusive alcoholic, yeah. that he's he can't solve everything. And if he does, maybe his very own spawn is the very thing that he's trying to fight. Right. You know? and, and, you know, uh, it's, it's that it's that grand, uh, you know, irony that he's trying to, you know, gut punch to his dad. Well, as well, you well, know, you know so many facets and the longer the longer vernon doesn't come forward the more likely he's going to win you know um mm -hmm. uh and, and and as the years go on the chances of this case ever closing get slimmer and slimmer a task force was put together uh directly focusing on this murder it was a partnership with the district attorney's office and the leon county sheriff's office uh, the DA at the time was Willie Meggs, and he was kind of leading this effort, as well as Florida State Prosecutor. We've been mentioning him throughout the, the show, Jeremy Mutz. Uh, mm -hmm. Soon after the formation of this organization, more evidence was being examined, as well as Vernon Fox and Mary LaJoy's involvement in this case. However, as things begin to really start taking a turn, uh, Mutz was let go from his position as uh, D.A. Meggs was suspecting that he was attempting to make a personal gain from the Sims case. Uh, the rumor was that uh, that uh, attorney Mutz was trying to write a book about this case. And considering all the information he had about this case, the access he had to the uh, investigation, he was going to use it as a book. Mm. And... That was unfounded, and I spoke to uh, Mr. Mutz uh, directly about this. 
he denies anything about that. Like he had no intention uh-huh. of publicizing this case or monetizing from it. He was okay. simply interested in getting this case out solving there it. and solving this. I mean, they. Right. In fact, like I said earlier. When he was interviewed, he someone asked him, "Do they have a case against somebody, and could they go to a grand jury to convict somebody, or or they go to a grand jury and put this on trial?" He says yes. And then they asked him, "Do they have a suspect, and could they be arrested today?" Yes, they can. Um, so things were happening in that uh, organization. To where things were moving, but I think they were moving a little too fast for the district attorney's office, and they were getting a little uncomfortable, oh. I bet. Mm. And then, literally, not long after um, Mutz was fired, the task force was disbanded, citing money issues. Yeah, unfortunately, that's how it always goes, right? Yeah, but for, for, for some reason, I don't buy that in this particular case. Like, Well, cold case task forces, it's just, I don't know, you and I both know, like the Long, Long Beach doesn't even have one anymore because it was just too much money and they have too many current cases. They were like, we literally have no time for cold cases that are even like two months old, yeah, let alone 50 years old. So I bet that's what happened. You know, it's like, we don't have the funding for that. We have tons of cases that are open right now that are happening of gangs, this, that, the other, that we need to put money into. We cannot put money into a case that's 50 years old. So I bet right. that's what it is. But, but, but the, they would be well to do so because yeah. the, the suspect can be caught now and he's out there as we have found out from the task force that is now disbanded and it all was based off of verifiable DNA evidence so let's get the fucker aka Vernon and his fucking (laughs) stupid ass merry ass wife I'm sorry I feel bad for her because you know childhood abuse I've been there we've all fucking been there but we're all not going out murdering people so I'm not giving them the oh such a bad childhood (laughs) I feel so bad for you let's like lick your pussy and eat your butthole completely agree with that you know like i think vernon's gonna play the whole oh you're so bad for me if he gets caught so is this merry woman it's like nobody's gonna feel bad for you you had that one pivotal point in your life in your teenage years where you chose to be a dickhead or an angel and you chose to be a fucking dickhead so you get to live with that Bye. Well, <laughs> and you know what's crazy about this is that we didn't even know. We, we didn't even know Vernon Fox and Mary LaJoy were even involved in this case until 2015 when local author Henry Cabbage revealed their names in public. And he also yeah. played parts of that six-hour-long interrogation between the sheriff Thank and Mary. Thank God for him. Yeah, he went out to the Florida. I forget what it was called, but it was a uh, over. It was like at a local um, state, like it was like a little like clubhouse, and they had this yeah. little meeting. And he talked about the Sims case, unveiled the names, and he had to consult with his attorney. Uh, Mr. Cabbage had to consult with his attorney to make sure he was not going to violate any libel laws because you know when you're falsely accusing somebody of something you better make sure it's in black and white before you say something in this case yeah yeah, and in this case in 2014 shortly before uh sheriff campbell passed away uh 
he may, he gave uh, Mr. Cabbage access to the Sims documents, which was never heard of at the time because. So Sims is Cabot is uh, or Campbell's voice is this new guy. Is this new guy? He's his voice yep. now. Basically, Campbell's like I'm getting to go, so I'm giving you the information to carry on. Yeah, because well, and, th- and that and also Mr. Cabbage has sued uh, Leon County and the state of Florida for access to these records because as you and I both know uh, typically in open investigations it's really difficult to get any kind of police documentation about open cold cases Um, because well there's that claim that this is an ongoing investigation we don't want to dirty up the investigation blah 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 um, and it's like, but if you're not doing anything about it, then is it really not ongoing? Right. And that's and, kind of what his viewpoint is. Yeah, and, if you're not doing anything about it, then give me the information. Exactly. And and Mr. Cabbage uh, was going on for years about how he wanted to do something about this case. He wanted to write a book about it initially, but then he said he wasn't going to. Instead, he was going to do a presentation. Uh, and after he went through everything and talked to the sheriff and everything, um yeah came public came forward said their names and then it just became a crazy frenzy to where now vernon fox is trying to clear his name on the internet and uh and doing interviews in fact uh the the mentioned uh, documentary uh 641 muriel court vernon fox makes an appearance in there toward the end Mm-hmm. And, he does. Uh, so you'll get to see him speaking. That's where he says, oh, the, the girl in the third grade and licks his lips and all that yep. crazy stuff. It's in that. So you'll see that. Yep. So uh, you guys got to watch it. It's yeah. In fact, you can find the link on the Facebook page as well. Uh, Facebook.com slash true cold case. But uh, one one last thing I want to add as a footnote, and I've already mentioned it earlier, is that DNA evidence is available in this case. Latin prints were taken at the scene of the crime, so they have prints to compare with, and they have DNA evidence. It's just now a matter of trying to figure out who those kind of belong to, you know? So uh, that's where we're at in this investigation. And like I said, despite the fact that this podcast is running almost two hours, uh, this is literally an abbreviated version of this event, of this crime. So before anybody says, oh, we missed a part, this is abbreviated. We know we missed them. Yeah, and abbreviated uh, and, like, you know, theories at length. So that's why it's, 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 it's a lot of information, a lot of stuff to get through, a lot of uh, personalization of information, a lot yep. of things that we perceive uh, from information we find. So we do like to cover everything, but watch the documentary um, just in case there's yeah. anything we missed. Uh, and, again... Uh, we hope that we gave you all and that was our episode on the Sims homicide from when this podcast was once known as true cold case files I want to thank Daisy once again for joining me on that episode that we had recorded in December of 2019 and was officially released on our podcast in January of 2020 now For those of you who have any tips or any kind of information you want to send to law enforcement on this case, you can contact the Big Bend Crime Stoppers at 850-574-TIPS. Again, that phone number is 850-574-TIPS. 
Now, as we mentioned in the podcast, that wasn't all the information about the Sims that you can find. There's a lot more information about this case out there, and I'm sure you can find many theories. In fact, one of the suspects that we mentioned in this case, Vernon Fox, has had a media presence online, and you can definitely find some of the things that he's written about on Reddit. So... If you're curious to see what he has to say about the case, check it out. Just type in Vernon Fox Sims Reddit. It'll pop up on Google. And also, a lot of the information that we got for the podcast did come from a documentary that Daisy and I had watched called 641 Muriel Court. You can check that video out on Vimeo. It is still out there. It's still available in its full-length entirety. Check it out. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in learning more about the case. Until next time, I'm Jason Futch, and thank you for listening to From the Vault. This episode of From the Vault is sponsored by Crime Watchers in pursuit of the missing, the unidentified, and justice. Each year, thousands of cases are reported throughout the United States involving missing individuals, people who are victims of homicide, and random bodies that are found throughout the country that end up not having a name months, maybe even years later. CrimeWatchers.net is the perfect place to talk about these kind of cases because if we continue to talk about them, that means that they have not been forgotten, that justice could soon prevail in their cases. And if we don't talk about them, perhaps they may fade like a distant memory and they may never see justice ever. That's why we continue to talk about some of these cold cases, including the one that you're going to be listening to today. That's why I implore you, go to crimewatchers.net, sign up for a free account, and get started on the conversation because perhaps you can make a difference today. That's www.crimewatchers.net.